Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Vast Podcast. What's up? I'm here with Jake and the one and only, the bishop, the apostle <laughs> to the world, Chris Palmer. <laughs> the apostle for the world. The apostle. I love it. I feel like a- I feel like I need to create a logo for that, just just for that. <laughs> <laughs> a branding put it, mechanism. Put it on Thassy memes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> me, me myself, right? Chris, <laughs> how's uh, Palm Springs treating you, man? I love it. Nice and hot. I uh, we, we had a windstorm today. I was telling you guys about that. And uh, I get outside, my car's full of dust. And uh, oh, But I'll wow. take dust over... Yeah, I'll take dust over snow any day. Though. Dust over You're- snow, because I'm from Michigan. So... So we're talking like, this is like really picking up sand and throwing it about. Yeah. He said 80 mile an hour winds in some places. Wow. Oh yeah. I'm surprised is my that, car is still on it. Yeah. Is that common out there? Like that happens a lot? No, it doesn't happen much. I mean, this is maybe one of two times I've seen it happen in, in almost a year. And um, it, it's, it's kicking up a lot of dust. And uh, like I said, I'm surprised my car has not moved off the driveway. That, that windy. <laughs> so uh chris man you've been on the podcast before um but just give our our listeners just a quick overview who you are what you're currently doing um just to kind of frame in yeah so i first i'm a fan of vast faith and and jake and mike i love you guys and it's just great to be here with you guys again and two sharp minds that you know inquiring minds i love it um so i am a former pastor of six and a half years, uh, missionary, traveled to 47 countries and preached gospel. Um, author, author of a number of books, uh, three of them are on Greek, uh, devotional readings of different passages in the New Testament, different studies in the New Testament, where I kind of frame a method of for reading that's devotional. Um, so, and then a professor of Greek New Testament, um, I teach at Moody Bible Institute. And I also am the dean of Theosu, and we're building an educational program here at Theos Seminary, where we are trying to make uh, education affordable and available to anybody that wants to get in the game of theology. So that's about yeah. it in a nutshell. And you guys do a phenomenal mm-hmm. job of that. What do you charge for Theos Seminary? It's like ninety nine dollars a month. Ninety nine dollars a month, yeah. and they can take the equivalent of a bachelor's of theology is what they're doing, right? Yeah. And they, you guys are in the process of getting that. Fully accredited. Yeah, we're working with ABHE to get it accredited, and it's like you know, if you if you're at it for, I think you can get a class done in eight weeks if you really work at it, and, and uh, it's not killing yourself. But eight weeks, you should be able to turn a class around and uh, take a week off and get ready for the next class. If you do that, you'll win. You'll beat the system, and you'll you'll learn theology. And we just finished revamping all, all of our syllabuses, our syllabi, I should say, uh, to just just be really a uh, aggressive and well-trained school for students to come out and just, you know, not be divorced from the church to be clergy men and women and um, to, to really handle theology well and train God's people. So I think it's the best and it's the best available offer today. Hopefully. Yeah. At least I, I love about you guys is you guys love the church and I just, yeah. that element is missing. Um, yeah. But you guys just love the local church. I've kind of a random yeah. question for you that, Sure. Um, was unplanned, but you said you had preached the gospel in 47 different nations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. W- one of the things that, you know, kind of like floats around in the ether these days is like almost kind of in a sense that spreading the gospel in that 
way as a missionary is by the secular world almost viewed as a form of colonialism. Man, tell us about your experiences preaching the gospel in 47 mm-hmm. different nations. Like, it, yeah, we, I think we, those... we believe the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the yeah. gospel. Like, it's, you know, it's foundational. But um, talk about that a little bit. I, I've heard that before, and I've had to tell my students that um, I've never had to apologize for being an American anywhere that I went. You know, my unique social identity is American. I'm Italian American, fourth generation. Um, I don't apologize for that. That's who God has created me to be. In my experience, everywhere I've gone as an American, people were glad that I was there. They were very mm-hmm. curious about the American culture. Um, to some regard, they were thankful for the American culture. Um, you know, people might say it's colonialism, but, you know, where I've gone, they've asked for the support of Americans and we're, we were always happy to give it. We've, my ministry has supported a number of projects and um, has helped people and nobody was ever afraid to take the American dollar and ask for our support. And I feel that, you know, it was my responsibility with my stewardship as an American, someone who was born into America, who's been economically blessed by birth. Um, to steward that wherever I go. I think that, you know, if you walk humbly and um, you do your best to assimilate without trying to take on the identity of that culture, just know that every culture you're in, you, you, you do pretty well. I think, you know, I've, I've taught classes on intercultural ministry and doing ministry in different contexts with being who you are. And um, I think that if you attempt to learn the language with the people and, and share with the people, but not be something you're not, it, it comes off really well. So I've never had any accusing of colonialism. I think that, <laughs> you know, a lot of people in these universities who say stuff like that are just deeply out of touch and um, just mm. kind of aren't their quarterbacking it from the sidelines. Mm. Um, that's my, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Uh, have you found yourself bringing the gospel into cultures that uh, just haven't had, like, it's just a new thing for them entirely. What's that experience been like if you have? Yeah, so a lot of the cultures I've been to, they are familiar with Christ. I mean, I would say I'm amongst believers in, in many of those cultures, European cultures, um, Eastern European cultures, Southeastern Asian cultures. You know, some countries have to be more careful. I remember we were in Laos one time. This is probably, we were in deep Laos. So these people necessarily haven't heard of Christ, but, you know, we were under a threat to, we couldn't really preach Jesus. Uh, we couldn't say that name without you know, having some sort of threat of, of jeopardizing the organization or ourselves being jeopardized. So we had to find ways, creative ways of planting a seed in, in that place. Um, so in, in those types of places, yeah, like deep communist countries that are governed really well, where there's few people and they can do a better job governing, it was more difficult. Um, but in European countries, it's it's not necessarily introducing Christ. It's kind of reintroducing Christ, reintroducing the gospel to these people who are, are tired of some sort of stale religion or they've had a bad experience with it. And they're just kind of, they're not even atheists. They're just nothing. They don't, don't think about it. They mm-hmm. maybe there's a creator, maybe there's not, they don't have a dog in the fight. It's just, you know, we want to eat and drink and because tomorrow we die. So w- when you're in those types of cultures, it's, you, you're really depending on the, the power of the spirit um, for conviction and trusting in God's spirit to convict them of sin and righteousness and, and redemption. Um, the love of God, I think, you know, even in, in being in cultures, you know, you're always preaching without, you're preaching the gospel, but your life, your life and the way you love and the kindness that you show and, and the gentleness that you walk in um, really speaks to those people. And 
you know, I've had some experiences where I've, I've had to kind of put myself out there and get out of my comfort zone. And but, but those are the things that really open up the people's hearts uh, to receive what you have to say. Um, in some cultures, eating the food or uh, wearing the garments that they wear or just, and again, it's not trying to be them. It's just trying to, to be amongst them. It, it's so helpful for preaching the gospel. So there's a lot I could say on all that, but yeah, it's yeah. been, it's been a great experience. I, I really do love the nations and, and being a part of it. That's so awesome. Mm -hmm. That's such a massive accomplishment. 47 different nations. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, sorry for the tangent. (laughs) No, it's cool. I love talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So you are a Greek scholar, among other things. um, Mm -hmm. And you have uh, a personal project going on right now. uh, I think looking, uh, taking a fresh look at Revelation, um, uh, particularly uh, through... Um, not through the lens of, but just looking at suffering in Revelation. Um, And so uh, you made a point earlier that there's kind of a renaissance right now around the book of Revelation. Um, And I'm sure some of that is like for not very good reasons, like, you know, crazy stuff happening in the world. So people (laughs) open up their Bible to the book of Revelation. (laughs) All the answers. All the answers are there. Um, (laughs) Which, you know, you can comment on that if you want, but um, anyway, man, talk us through uh, uh, the work that you're doing, and I think it would be great yeah. to have a conversation around that. Well, I'll give you a story. When I was in, um, you know, if you go on the Theos memes page or Theos, you know, you've been around Theos long enough where you see kind of we, we take shots at dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons we do that is because in the charismatic world, particularly the Pentecostal world, people don't really know that there's another way of reading Revelation that is outside of a dispensational framework. Um, when I was in a freshman in, in uh, Bible college, I was reading the book, God's Plan for Man by Finnis Dake, and he's also the, the author of the Dake Bible. And I read that whole book, and it was a thousand and nine pages. I still remember it took me two years, and I was reading that on top of the credits I was taking. I'd go to the library for two hours, the T.J. Jones Library in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'd sit down there next to this old pipe, and I would read that. And I got to the section in the last quarter of the book where he's doing a reading of Daniel and Revelation. And I just remember being so, God really working in my life so much and um, speaking through me through that book. And, and it's very dispensational. Um, but I always had problems with the complexity of, of end times and eschatology from, from the way that Dake was presenting it from this dispensational framework. And I remember one time when I was sitting there, I was at, the presence of God was so strong as I was studying. And my study had led to contemplative prayer. And, and, and I wrote something down in my journal about how I sensed that the spirit in that moment was leading me to, at some point in my life and in the course of my ministry, um, teach on the book of Revelation. And I kind of just put it aside and left it there, but I never forgot mm. that what the spirit did in my life. Mm. Um, after I graduated with my master's degree um, from, from Moody uh, Bible Institute, I was contemplating doctoral work. And I went to one of my professors and I just said, hey, you know, I don't want to stop learning. I feel the leading of the spirit to uh, continue in education. And, and what do you think? He said, well, what would you want to do your thesis on? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, you should work in the back half of the New Testament. Um, and then he said, oh, I'm going to put you in touch with who is my now advisor, John Christopher Thomas. And Chris Thomas said to me, I'll take you on as a doctoral student. And I really wanted him as an advisor if if you do the book of Revelation. So that was like checkbox one. And then at the same time, Whitaker House had you know, talked to me about doing a book my first Greek for the Week book 
on the book of Revelation. So I, I took that as kind of a divine um, full, com- I think, yeah, confirmation, things coming first, full circle, remembering what the Lord had led me to, to do. And then I, I was still thinking about it at that point. And, at that, and that was 2018. Uh, in August 2018, when I was trying to really hammer out how I wanted to get at the book of Revelation, I went to Cambodia, uh, Cambodia on a trip. And while I was there, um, before I started preaching, we went to the killing fields of Pol Pot. And it was one of the most mm-hmm. defining, I think, seminal moments in my ministry. Um, because here you have uh, these, there's a number of killing fields around there. But and this is probably one of the main ones where over 110,000 people were killed. Um, by, by the, uh, Pol Pot's government and in that, in that very field. And when I was leaving, I saw one of the most eerie sights I'd ever seen in my life. And it was like a 20, it's a, probably a 60 foot, I think I looked it up on Wikipedia recently, 60 foot tall wall of human skulls. And these are actual, not replicas, but actual human skulls of people who, who died in those fields. And I remember wrestling with the problem of evil and the goodness of God in that moment. And, uh, tears were coming down my eyes and I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't rectify it. And so in that moment, that was where I felt the way I would process this is that I would give this to the Lord um, in a time of a season. I'd enter a season of study and, and look at the book of Revelation and how um, this last book of the Bible speaks to the problem of evil, speaks to the justice of God, the goodness of God, mm. and, and, and how that might contribute towards where Pentecostals are at and how they, they currently look at the book of Revelation. And so that's I'm kind of coming to the end of that project and about a year and a half will be done, but that's, that's what I've been up to. So. Wow. Well, we want to uncover all of that. Um, can you quickly give it just in a nutshell, what is dispensationalism? Um, because yeah. a majority of our listeners are <laughs> um, probably asking that question now. Dispensationalism is a theological framework that breaks up um, the reading of scripture into various time periods. This is how I define it. Um, there's usually seven dispensations. A dispensation is a period of time. It could be a long period, it could be a short period where God deals with people uh, on, different, on a different basis. Uh, so you have, for instance, this dispensation of human government, where he deals with people based on human government, the dispensation of law uh, under Moses, where he deals with people on the law, the dispensation of grace, where after Christ comes, he deals with people based on this dispensation. Um, and, and, and maybe distinct to all this is how God particularly deals with Israel uh, during that time. Dispensationalism kind of teaches that Israel is the, the centerpiece for God's dealing with humanity. Uh, and during the church age, it's kind of taking a pause and he's not dealing with Israel. He's dealing with the church and then he's going to rapture the church and, um, and then begin to deal with Israel again. So the church is kind of this pause in God's dealing with Israel. Um, it makes a, a real sharp, sharp, acute distinction between Israel uh, and the people of God. And that leads into a, a reading of eschatology um, and a reading of the book Revelation that I just personally disagree with. I think it's problematic for different types of reasons. I think that um, and I don't really want to, we don't have to get deeper into that. David Campbell has a lot of good stuff on that. I think that I can point people to, but that's sort of what it is in that show. Can you give it just like maybe a one ex- like basic example of how that bears out just so people kind of know what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So um, you, you might see like a prophecy conference that anytime there's so they would read the book of Revelation as uh, chronologically. OK, so first you have the six, uh, excuse me, the seven seals. Then you have the seven trumpet judgments. Then you have the seven vials. And this is a chronological timeline. And so um, all of this takes place. All of this kind of kicks off 
after the rapture of the church, which they believe happens in Revelation 4.1. So they, they think that in reading Revelation, that we're in the church age now, Revelation 2 and 3, and then we get raptured, and then the book of Revelation could start. So Revelation's kind of set aside for this time that we're not going to be here. So they don't really see any immediate relevance to it at the moment. And this is kind of an afterthought. We're not going to be here. When any of this stuff happens, we kind of escape. So it produces an escapism and... In my, my opinion, kind of a lack of responsibility, I think. And um, the way that I, I read Revelation is much different. Like what we'll talk about today, I think that Revelation is a cyclical, which means reoccurring, okay, series of visions and events that take place that can be applied to every time period. It's telling the story of the Exodus uh, repeatedly in different ways, shapes, and forms to show that this is the suffering of the people of God. This is what the people of God go through. And it's called the faithfulness to follow Christ um, amidst that. So when you're not, when you're reading a dispensation, you're kind of looking for an escape and you kind of anticipate the rapture. You anticipate sort of um, these cataclysmic events when you're reading it the way that um, I may offer a reading of it or how I'm offering it and others have offered it historically. Um, you anticipate faithfulness to Christ. And what does it look like in my era, in my day to follow the Lamb um, and to and to be obedient in, in a time where judgment is being poured out through plague and famine, things that all generations of people see. Yeah, that's good and helpful. And so I guess just for our listeners, like a couple of things, um, people will often, I think, kind of like pejoratively refer to dispensationalism as newspaper theology or newspaper yeah. eschatology, which I think is reasonable because most of the time dispensationalists look at things that are printed in the news as a sign of the coming, mm-hmm. you know, I guess of the rapture about to take place, the church yeah. being sucked out of the world. It comes uh, part and parcel with a belief that God has essentially two different arrangements, one with the church, one with Israel, um, and that uh, uh, Israel will be saved separately uh, than the church. Um, and uh, like there'll be the basically the reinstallment of like the temple all the, the sacrificial system, like all that will come back. So there's just, the reason it's worth talking about that, I think is because as you said, a lot of people don't know that there are other eschatological views, but dispensationalism is so deeply rooted in North America. Um, and as I understand it, it's, it's certainly not the historic view. Like three other yeah. options would be historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism. Um, mm-hmm. I know David Campbell is an amillennialist. I'd, I think I certainly fall into that camp as well. Um, But anyway, it's worth talking about all that just so people know that there's a whole foundation to this, this branch of theology that, um, that undergirds our conversation today. Yeah. I think, I think millennialism is probably the best choice, Um, Mm -hmm. but there's respectable. So I would lean that way. I think there's scholars like Craig Keener and um, he, he kind of goes back and forth between historic pre-mill and and millennial. And, and Mm -hmm. then Wayne Grudem, you know, he was an omnil, now he's sort of free mill. So I think those positions are safe and don't require dispensational reading of scripture. But again, if if you kind of have, if so somebody who's listening is like, well, how do I know if I'm dispensational and how bad am I? Well, I don't think you're bad. You know, it's not like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're unsaved. But, but I would say, and I say this to dispensationals, I think you'll, you'll have a very, you have a more satisfying, succinct reading of scripture uh, if you give some time to looking at how it's read by those who are not dispensational and, and you'll find that it might sit better with you. It will sit better with you. At least that's, 
that's the case. There's a lot of people that have left it and don't intend on ever going back to it. So, and I guess it's a lot has to do with it is inherited. All that has to do with faithfulness in suffering. Um, and so I think you're going to talk a little bit about that. So, um, why don't you dive into some of the stuff that's been on your mind? So I think that one, one of the things I was curious about is understanding in my context, when I, when we do theology, I always, I believe theology is contextual. So I've said this and it's one of my lines, I guess we were, when we do theology with somebody doing something from somewhere, we're not just a nobody doing nothing. We, we bring our context, our own context to scripture. We read that way. Um, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We just have to know who we are when we're doing theology. And so as a Pentecostal, somebody who's mm. deeply affected by, and, and by Pentecostal, I mean somebody who begins with the spirit and when the spirit has changed my life. And I can't walk away from what the spirit did when I was 14 years old and how that spirit has drawn me and has helped me read scripture and um, et cetera, et cetera. So in reading that, I was curious how my people prior to me, um, my forebears, if you will, um, read read things, uh, particularly suffering. And, and so you have this, you have this movement, this, this Pentecostal movement in 1906, and kind of you have today, which is kind of this charismatic movement. People kind of come out of the third wave, ladder rain type stuff. And it's like, well, wh- what do we believe about suffering? And, and the idea of suffering is this very triumphalistic uh, view of suffering, that suffering should happen now, be immediate. And when, when suffering doesn't happen, there's when suffering continues and there's not a healing or there's not somebody who is um, delivered or whatever, there's, there seems to be some sort of confusion. Deconstruction sometimes takes place. People throw mm-hmm. off their... So I'm like, what, what's taking place? So when I, when, I, when I started going through early Pentecostal articles and, and seeing how they approach suffering, and for definition, I mean, number one, Christian suffering, persecution, suffering for preaching the gospel in Christ's sake. But I also mean, but they also talked about sick, suffering as sickness. They talk mm-hmm. about suffering as just anything that uh, causes pain, discomfort, and trouble. So it does include sickness. They never accepted it as the will of God, sickness, but they also understood that it wasn't, healing wasn't always immediate in this life. And, and they never sought to give a theoretical explanation for why a person didn't get healed. But what they, do, what they would say is that even in, in these times of suffering, um, though we don't understand why it's happening, I'm paraphrasing, or why it's taking place, we do see that God God can work through it, um, and our lives can still bear witness to God even if we're sick. Our life can can still bear witness to God even if we're we're suffering some sort of trouble that we don't know how to how to get from. And they'd always say that suffering, in any various form, does produce gentleness, produces the fruits of the spirit, produces love. Not that you should seek it, but these are some things, some of the good that comes from it. Um, so they saw virtue in it, uh, not in the suffering itself, but what God would accomplish through that. So I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting because. They didn't have this triumphalistic view on suffering that, that if you don't get healed, you don't have enough faith or the kingdom is now. So everybody should be healed. That, that wasn't their attitude at all. So I think that that's an interesting observation. So when you see like these triumphalistic views, on we must get healed because the kingdom is now. And that's not how they were back then. Right. So um, they talk differently about suffering. In other words, um, so. Here's here's something if I might I might share that I, I pulled out of a article from the Lateran Evangel in August 1919. This is what it says: There is nothing on earth that is not in some way related to sorrow or hedged in it by it, um, or that does not partake of its color and tone. We are redeemed by sorrow. Our Savior, in pouring out His precious blood for our everlasting salvation, said, "I am exceeding sorrowful." Repentance is made up of many kinds of sorrow. The consecration of the believer is steeped in holy sorrow. 
Almost all prayer is saturated by various kinds of sorrow. The power of music depends on the sorrow that is in it. The poetry of the great masters that holds our intellects spellbound deserves its mighty magic from the sad strains of sorrow that run through it all. It is the sorrow element in everything that seizes and holds the hearts of mankind beyond any other influence. It is sorrow that immortalizes battlefields and monuments and tombs and great heroes and martyrs. It is a sorrow piled, piled up in the Westminster Abbey that draws thousands annually to walk through its halls with silent, uncovered heads. It is a sorrow in the Bible that makes it the most natural as well as the most divine book on earth. And kinds of, and all kinds of philosophers, young men and maidens, beggars and lonely savages in the forest are more deeply touched with the pathetic lives of the dear old weeping patriarchs than with the shallow, heartless noise of mere fleshly events. Sorrow is the universal language of earth and more easily understood by human hearts than any one thing. Sorrow is the normal state of the world that has fallen, and yet under conditions of redemption. Sorrow on the earth is the root of which can be made to grow and blossom the sweetest joys of heaven. Sorrow is a species of suffering with hope in it. Sorrow is the pathetic poetry of a fallen world in which hope still lingers. The heavenly life on earth is tinctured all through with many kinds of sorrow. We are redeemed by sorrow when sorrow comes under the power of divine grace it works out a manifold ministry in our lives. That's how the Pentecostals thought about suffering and sorrow, mm. which, to, which to me is powerful. Yeah. Well, I think you make that distinction, right? Because when people think Pentecostalism today, they think word of faith a lot of times, which is the kind of more the variety of like naming and claiming your way out of suffering. Yeah. Decreeing, decreeing and declaring. <laughs> decreeing and so, declaring. Yes. Yes. They, they tend to think that. And, um, you know, I think that's a, a probably a really bad image, and maybe maybe my thesis in some way will recover some of what um, what I think Pentecostal really was. I mean, these were broken people; they were at the margins. They they weren't poor. Like everybody thinks that the Pentecostals were a poor man's movement, uh, but it really wasn't. There was a lot of wealthy, affluent people who were part of it, but they were persecuted. Uh, they knew they knew that sorrow. They knew the sorrow of sickness. A lot of them would go on the mission fields. And preach the gospel and, and preach that they used to call it the Pentecostal experience, which was baptism with the spirit. And they died. I mean, they died. They died sick. You know, John G. Lake, a lot of times people say he went to South Africa and he was unaffected by sickness. Maybe he was, wasn't affected by sickness, but there was a whole lot of Pentecostals he was contemporaries with that died and never mm -hmm. came back. Um, and, and they laid their lives down for what they believed. And I think that boldness and that willingness to, to give up the comforts of life is as a Pentecostal thing that resonates with the early church and, and, and those things I see tremendous um, congruency with the early church. So that's more of the reason why I'm Pentecostal than say, you know, because name and claim it word of faith, which I think is just that serious problem. I love our brothers and sisters for a word of faith, but there's a lot of working out to do there. Mm -hmm. so, so connect all this to revelation for me. Like what was, so yeah. So we get to the book of revelation and, um, you know, we find, so let me just say this, I'm looking, so working through my thesis, I'm looking for suffering in it. You know, I'm looking to see in, in, my, in one of my chapters, I have to read Revelation and I have to make a decision. How do I want, what do I want to look at in it? So for instance, one of my colleagues has looked at worship in the book Revelation. And it's magnificent because the most profound worship in all the New Testament, I would argue, maybe mm. outside of, and in the whole Bible, outside of Psalms, mm. we find in the book of Revelation, I mean, you have Moses' song in the book of Revelation. You have, you have 
you have the bringing of the Old Testament music into the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And even Psalmic uh, loses an echo. So it kind of brings it all together. But yet, what's interesting, and, and a lot of this is songs of rejoicing, songs of hope, songs of, of, of happiness. But yet, in Revelation, you have some of the deepest suffering. One of my um, advisors said to me, I can't believe you chose the topic of suffering. This is, this is torturous. Why? This is because you're, you're going to suffer doing this because almost every verse in Revelation it implicitly or explicitly, explicitly talks about suffering or implicit implies there's suffering in it. I mean, look at the seals, the vials, the, the judgments, all the judgments, there's suffering. You look at the seven churches, there's suffering. You look at Jesus wiping away every tear and, and he's, he's handling suffering. So, um, you know, you, you see the suffering of the earth, you see the suffering of the wicked, you see the suffering, I mean, Satan suffers in it, and the false prophet suffers in it, you know, you have Babylon falls, they're suffering in it. It's like everybody's, it's just this mass suffering party and everybody's invited to it. Um, so what do you, so <laughs> even the church, know, <laughs> even the, even the church, exactly. The church is there. The people of God are there and, 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 and there's worship and there's joy. And it's like, there's so much going on in this. How do you I delineate? How do you go through this? So I'm like, well, let's just follow the trails of suffering and see where they lead. So, so maybe we can go through a few verses that I find, I find that's interesting. Um, and so I, we can use the Greek to do it. Uh, I Great. think in, and doing this is since kind of you have the you, ability since the ability is there since the ability <laughs> is there um so one observation i made right off the bat is that you know we, we know in revelation chapter one um you know usually when somebody is authoring something they put their name on it um i wish the author of hebrews would have known that so we wouldn't have as much controversy <laughs> about who authored it he didn't get the memo he's supposed to put his name in there somewhere he yeah. didn't do it you know now it was and clearly it was Paul. We know it was Paul. <laughs> Kenneth Hagin said Jesus told him it was Paul. That settles it, right? <laughs> did he really? Did he? Yeah, he did. he did. Oh, no. Yeah, that, 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 that settles it. Yeah. When you get around Word of Faith people, that's that you better not say anything else. Oh, you better not even mm-hmm. call the writer of Hebrews because Dad Hagin heard, and I'm not, I love Dad Hagin, but I, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if that really, that, that works as a footnote, Brother Hagin, but okay, you know? So, <laughs> um, but we get, so, so John, he does something interesting is he says his name three times and they're very clearly like you see in Revelation 1 verse 1, he says, he made known, he made known these things by sending it to his servant, John, um, in the Greek is totulo to Ione, which is, you know, his servant, servant is put there first. He's making it clear. He's the servant of guys, John, and that really does suffice. And then in verse four, he now he's not talking about the reception of the message anymore. He's talking about himself as the messenger, as the messenger with the message, who he's going to deliver that message to. And he says, John, okay, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So, Ionas, case Ecclesias, which is John to the seven churches. I'm writing this letter to you. And then, okay, so that's good. And then, then he talks to him. He goes from receiving the message to giving the message to, hey, I'm going to have a personal talk with you guys. Let me bring it down to a personal talk. He says, Ego Yones, Odelphos Umon, which is I, I, John, okay, your brother. So he's, it's, it's interesting that he does that because he's kind of getting down to the level. So the fact that John says his name three times, I think, is, is really important. It kind of sets himself up and sets up suffering really nicely because you think about John's experience, okay? He's arrested. He's, he's deemed a political prisoner. He's sent to this island called Patmos, which is 36 miles off of the coast of Asia Minor. 
This is not a place for vacation. It's not like going to Hawaii and getting on the Waikiki beach and, and grilling up some burgers. It's not what he's going to experience. He's going there. He's hated. He's seen as, I mean, think about this. He is seen as a threat to the Roman Empire. He's hated by the Romans. Um, he's someone who's looking at stirring up trouble. Um, so, and he's, and he's like 90 something years old. So he's got this boat ride that he survives 36 miles it, on the Aegean Sea. It's, it's quite a lot. If you're in a little, a little boat that could break up, it would have been rough on him. He gets there. Now he's got to bust rocks because Patmos is a rocky terrain. It's a quarry. He's going to have to smash stones and he's suffering it. And nobody would have expected a guy his age to live, but he survives and he survives by the grace of God. He overcomes his suffering. So, so I think that. By announcing his name three times, he's implying that the sufferer, the suffering martyr for Christ has survived and he's reassuring his churches, I'm here, I'm present, it's I, I'm going to say it to you three times, it's me, it's me, it's me, I, John. And then he, he, he says something I think that really um, is a structural feature in the book of Revelation that kind of sets up nicely what you can expect from somebody who's going to suffer just like him. And he says, I'm your brother. Okay, Adelphos in the Greek, this was referring to someone who came out of the same womb. We're brothers. We've come out of the womb of Christ. We've been born by him. We've been bought. We share in this. So we're going to share in suffering together. He says, I'm your partner in tribulation. We've, we've gone through suffering together. Okay, he says, and in the kingdom and the patient endurance uh, that, it, that are in Christ Jesus. So he's basically told them, look at I'm suffering. The first sufferer that's introduced in the book of Revelation is Jesus. Jesus suffered, and I suffered because Jesus suffered. And guess what? You're going to suffer because I suffered, and we're all going to suffer together. And buckle your seatbelts, we're going on. But just like I overcame, you're going to overcome, and we're going to overcome together. Because as Christ suffered, you suffer. As Christ overcame, you're going to overcome. As Christ reigned, you're going to reign. And I think that sets up the force of what's next in Revelation. Should we understand that suffering? So like the, the two metaphors that are put forward are Israel in the wilderness and Israel in exile in Babylon. And those mm -hmm. are kind of both akin to the church age. Is that a true enough thing to say? I mean, I think it's illustrative. I don't know yeah. how dogmatic I'd be about it, but I think those texts are the straight truth. So in an illustrative way, right? So like, because one of the struggles is like, okay, we should experience, expect to experience suffering. And uh, at the same time, we should expect to experience God's provision, God's grace, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. amounts to uh, legitimate joy and legitimate blessing. Um, mm -hmm. And is the reason I bring up those two illustrative examples is because it seems to me, e even Israel in some ways flourished while they were in exile as God commanded them to flourish and to seek the welfare of the city. Um, right. Even in the wilderness, uh, God's provision was there. So like, I don't know, help us understand. Yeah. Reconcile. There's a, there's, there's def so I think first of all, we, we take a canonical look at the book of Revelation. Revelation doesn't sit by itself. So you have to see that God's people do flourish. God's people are blessed. God's people are the blessed. And, you know, speaking as a whole, um, absolutely, you can expect, and I do believe, you know, you can expect the blessing of God. I mean, I think a lot of us are living our best life now, you know, and, and I don't, if, if you're living your best life now, there's no reason to make an apology for it. But I do think times of suffering will come. And times of suffering come, either you suffer directly or you suffer because someone you love 
is suffering. And I think if you have that tension, you know how to balance it, you have the right perspective. I mean, suffering is certainly not the goal. The Pentecostals never were like, yeah, more suffering. Let's, they weren't masochists. They weren't ascetics where they were trying to just inflict pain on themselves. They rejoiced a lot. They sung a lot in, in their literature. There was always these hymns of joy and, 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 and look at like book revelations, songs of joy and, and celebration of works before God. I think the, the right aspect is the balance to understand. Look at one, one thing revelation sets up is that we're living in a fallen, flawed world where something is deeply, deeply wrong. Something is problematic that my suffering that I experienced, my confusion, my sense that something, and look, I'll give you an example. Um, I was writing this book that comes out in July called Weeks from Scripture, and I was dealing with the problem of suffering, um, maybe from my take on it. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of doing a literary reading from the Gospels. And uh, when I was, I'd, I'd finished writing for the day, and I was going out to eat, and the traffic was backed up on a Friday night. Traffic's not supposed to be backed up on a Friday night. They don't do construction. There's obviously an accident. And I get to the scene of the accident, and, and my heart sinks because there's a body bag on the, on, the, on the highway and somebody's dead. And like, it, it choked me up. I get choked up thinking about it. That's somebody's loved one. Um, somebody's going to be getting a call that's going to change their life. And there's going to be a minister or a pastor who's going to be doing a funeral in a couple of days. And he's going to have to figure out how to explain this. Uh, and, and I remember kind of feeling led to not dismiss that feeling, not even to necessarily, and I prayed for them, but not to pray it away, but just to sit with, that feeling for a little while. And mm-hmm. I sat with it for a couple of days and, and I, I reflected on what I was feeling. And I remember just writing in my journal, something is deeply wrong with this life. Something's deeply wrong. And so I think suffering tells us is the signal that what we feel that something's not right and something mm-hmm. is not what it is supposed to be. And in that, that pain that God allows us to sit with and to endure is supposed to draw us to God so that we can find hope and take that hope and place it in him. And when we can, and when we can have hope, then we can rejoice. So it's kind of like, what do you do with the pain? So I'm somebody who is deeply, who is wrestling with suffering, but I don't stay there. I hope in God and I hope in the Lord. It's kind of like the psalmist. I, I trust in God. So the pain causes the hope. The hope causes the joy, and the joy creates faith and expectation that that God's not going to leave this earth the way it is. He's going to wipe every tear away from my eyes, and this life is a real messed up experience of having joy and having suffering, and 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 God seeing me through it, and and me trusting by faith. And, and because there's people right that are Christians who, you know, there's Christians. I've watched Christians do everything right but experience nothing but pain and, and can't explain it. And I've watched Christians do everything wrong and live their best life every day. Mm-hmm. And you kind of are left in the place of the, of the, of the ecclesia, of the preacher in Ecclesiastes who's like, yeah, one, one preacher called it the glitch in the system. You do everything right mm-hmm. and there's still a glitch. Um, but I think, I think the book of Revelation kind of, kind of calls us back to that, you know, and, and John said it's him, you know, he overcame. And so him, that, those three cries to me, I, John, I, John, I, John, are, are cries that wherever we find ourselves, we're going to overcome, whether it be the temptation of, of greed and attempt, because we're going to find that the churches all have different experiences. In, in the next chapter, you have a church like Laodicea. I mean, Laodicea is the rich church. They had, they had black wool that they were selling. 
which is very expensive. They're only 40 miles from um, Ephesus, but they have no persecution. Okay. Um, they, they're, they're selling saw, which is making them quite rich. And they are, they're the ones who are a prosperity church, but so they're doing pretty well. And, th- and then you have the, the Philadelphians who are like 20 miles from there. They're, they're getting persecuted by those who say that they're Jews, but they're not. And, and then the Smyrnans, the same experience. They, the Lord tells them that they're going to be cast into prison for 10 days, um, which I think is a play on numbers uh, for the shortness of how persecution, how long persecution in this life lasts. So there's deep suffering on one end, and, but, but, this, but, the, but the cry, what the Spirit says to the church is the same thing. He that he has ears to let him hear what the Spirit says to the overcome, to the one who overcomes, that, that, that word, okay, that participle, one who overcomes, uh, it comes from the Greek word nikau, which means victory, um, to the one that has victory, whether, you know, we're, we're all looking for victory in this life, whether we're, we're tempted or complacent or we're suffering, our experience is to look to the Spirit and, and trust in Christ. And so I think Revelation beautifully speaks to all of us and what our own life experiences and we find that the spirit gives us grace and empowerment to kind of deal with the cards that are dealt to us and, and the question of why someone gets this these cards and why someone gets these cards i don't i don't know how you can answer that i don't think there's an explanation right now on this side of heaven that we'll find a bit random life's a bit random yeah i mean if you take a high view of god's sovereignty um which i do then yeah. All experiences of suffering somehow have to trace back to what role God is playing in uh, in that experience. Yeah. I don't pretend to understand how that works. Like that's such a mystery to me, right? Like I don't, I don't know, right? I just know that I, that I I believe God is sovereign. Um, and it it seems to me that in Revelation, the a lot of the suffering that's put forward is almost kind of circumstantial whether it's like direct persecution uh, or it's God's judgment upon the world and Christians who are present in the world while God is judging the world are experiencing, uh, I guess, just secondhand the ramifications of that judgment. Um, Do you want to comment? Yeah, I think that that's that's something that's important to delineate. The overall feel I think we get from the book of Revelation is that there's the suffering of the innocent, you know, that that's the experience. I mean, there, there's innocent suffering that's in there. So whether we want to be real pigeonholed by how the suffering takes place um, or, or just acknowledge using a broad sweep that there's innocent suffering, the, the good suffer with the bad. I think that's, that's probably the message that's there. And I think that's true of life. I mean, you get word of faith. Maybe the challenge is you get like a word of faith person says, "Oh, none of this is sickness." It's it's talking about persecution for the sake of the gospel. It's talking about this and that. I, I see why they say that, but again, you're dealing with a world that's broken. I think the bigger picture, the meta narrative, is the fact that we live we live in a very deeply flawed and deeply broken world. I think when Christ wipes the tear away from our eyes, I don't think it's just referring to you know someone's talked bad about you because you're a Christian. I think it's the sorrows of life. I think it's the troubles and the travails of sin, um, the fallenness. I think it's kind of watching the, the righteous get judged, experience the in, being in the same world with the wicked that get judged. I mean, look at COVID was a judgment. I mean, David Campbell, I think, is right on, spot on when he says that the judgment because of sin. Uh, cyclically, I don't think it's the seal, okay, or the, you know, whatever seal. 
But I think that, like I said, these judgments go round and round. Judgments of war, judgments of persecution, judgments of famine, judgments of martyrs. Like the mar- and, and the righteous get caught in this mix and they die in it. You know, look at look at the souls on the altar. The souls on the altar in the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9 to 11, cry out to God and say, hey, how long until you avenge our, our, our death? How long in the Greek is, is, a, is a powerful statement. It's a lament. It's extremely powerful. It's, it is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's provocative language. It comes from the Old Testament. It's a horrific lament, uh, a painful lament. And, and Jesus, or, or God tells them, just wait longer because more have to die. And it's like, more have to die. They're going to suffer innocently, and they're going to be slain for the word of God. And it's like, wh- what's going on with, with all this? And so, I think, I think we see that when by the time you get to the last chapter of Revelation, when he's he's wiping every tear from their eyes, he's they have a reason to be sad. I think they've experienced more than just maybe unjust persecution because they preached the gospel. Yeah, that's a really cool point. I never thought about that statement uh, about he will wipe away every tear from their eye as directly connected to all the reasons for shedding tears um, across the book of Revelation, but I guess really across uh, the entire New Testament church experience thus far um, up until that point in John's life. I mean, I I used to do, when I was, before I was doing anything in academics, I was pastoring in Detroit. Um, I was a pastoral care minister in downtown Detroit. So I did a lot of urban ministry and uh, it, that was all, it really got me out of my comfort zone. I really just developed a heart for the urban inner city areas. And I still have to go to these, these funerals, um, you know, and, and, you know, when you go do, you know, sister so-and-so's funeral, you find out she's 98 years old and she, she was surrounded by her loved ones when she died. It was always a celebration, and just a warm reception into heaven for her. But there was often times where I had to do funerals for six and seven year olds. I remember one of the most difficult funerals I ever did. I was in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. And I was preaching for this pastor. He's still a dear friend. And he went away for three weeks on vacation. I was manning the church. Well, you know, when the pastor goes away for vacation, there's always an emergency. And, <laughs> right? That's why pastors don't go away on vacations. <laughs> <laughs> That's why passes don't go too far. They go, they go 90 miles away where they can get back home in emergency. Exactly. So, Not me, man. I'm like, <laughs> how many miles can I go? <laughs> totally. Totally. So, so um, this mother who is a single mother of two, she went out to the club till 2 a.m. to party, you know, and her 13-year-old, her 10-year-old boy, no, 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 her 13-year-old boy stabbed her 18-year-old daughter to death with a butcher's knife. You know, it's like, and then the pastor said to me, can you do the funeral? Do I have to come back? I'm like, I can do it. You know, stay where you're at. I got it. But, you know, this funeral to watch, it's just, where the heck do you even begin with this? What do you even say? Because you have have something that is so demonic, Mm -hmm. satanic. And you have a, a disheartened mother who is clearly not wrong for stabbing, but she, what is she doing at the club at 2 a.m. when you have two kids mm-hmm. that age? And, and then you have like an innocent girl who's dead. Like, how do you, where do you even try to explain it? And, and I saw the tears. And I remember thinking about that verse and just asking the Holy Spirit to make some sort of, not sense out of it, but bring some sort of comfort to the people. 
um, supernaturally that, that this is all, I, I, and I see the wiping away the tears. I see this metaphor for somehow God is going to make everything right. The, the just God whose judgments are true, oh Lord, he's going to make it right. I don't know how, but he has to. He has to. If he doesn't, he's not just. And if he doesn't, right. he's not loving. And it, but so yeah, it's on him. He's made himself obligated to do so. Yes. Yes, if he's yeah. just, yeah. I love that um that proverb that talks about how uh it talks about the plans of man, but ultimately how it's the purpose of God that's gonna be upheld. Yeah. And it's God's purpose, God's will being, you know, I guess simplistically put like his his glory and the good of those who love him. And by saying that that is ultimately what is going to be upheld means that he has obligated himself to be just. He's obligated himself. Not that, he, I mean, he, he, is in, he is intrinsically those things anyway, but um, the fact that he said, it's my purpose that's going to stand means that we always have confidence that God is going to bring resolution to the craziness that we endure. I a thousand percent agree with that. I mean, it, it's, he's obligated himself and in this life, he's, he's asked to have faith and the trust. And again, I think that's, I mean, that comes into play with the Holy Spirit. I mean, we find the Holy Spirit is the seven spirits that come from the throne. I think as a reader, it's very crucial that the spirits come at the beginning of the book. I mean, he sends the seven spirits out at the very beginning. That's important that it, it, you don't see it in the middle. You see it happening in the front because what empowers us to overcome? What empowers us to trust? What empowers us to have faith? What empowers us to lay our lives down? What empowers us to be witnesses of Christ? What empowers us to deal with the judgments that the rest of the world gets? It's the spirit. And the spirit empowers us to do that. We're living spiritual lives. And I mean, woe to be toward the person who has to try to wrestle with, with suffering without the help of the, the Holy Spirit. We need them. Uh, you look at all of the philosophers that have, uh, in my thesis, I'm attempting to, to wrestle with Albert Camus, who was, um, if you want to read a really chilling book, and I, I really highly recommend it, okay. it's a chilling book. It's called The Stranger by Albert Camus. It's the only book I've ever read where my heart was pumping mm. fast. Like, you know, like when you're watching Game of Thrones wow. or whatever. Okay. Um, and it, it, yeah, it shows to you, it's a shorter read, and it, 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 it shows to you what absurdism is. And absurdism. he's a guy, absurdism, absurdism, yeah. And he's a guy that just believes that life really is nothing. There's no purpose. Mm -hmm. There's no meaning. We're supposed to create meaning. But in the meaning that you create, there is no meaning. And this mm -hmm. guy just doesn't care about anything at all. I mean, and, 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 and I, you can see that Camus is... He's wrestling with, he's wrestling with the question of suffering. He's wrestling with the problem of evil. And it's kind of like this nonchalant attitude where it's just, who, who cares? And the stuff that happens to this guy who's the protagonist in the book, um, he doesn't give a rip about nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think to myself, we all are confronted by the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. And if you approach that without the spirit, it doesn't lead to rejoicing. It leads to absurdism. It leads mm -hmm. to, Neo, um, uh, a neo um, atheism. I'll tell you something funny I told my buddy last night on the phone. He's a pastor. Don't hear me wrong. 
I said, you know, I sure do miss, I sure do miss atheists. He goes, well, what do you, what do you mean? I said, atheists wouldn't put up with this transgenderism type stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Guys like Christopher Hitchens had too much sense in, in, mm-hmm. in a certain way to let people get away with, you know, gender is fluid and stuff. And, you know, and, and, um, so anyway, that's just kind of an aside to what I'm saying. I digress, but, um, you know, it leads to this, this really chilling way of dealing with the problem of evil. And so I think, you know, one thing that, that the book of Revelation teaches us, what maybe early Pentecostals teaches is that we're all going to wrestle with suffering. We need the help of the spirit. We need the power of the spirit because that produces joy. It produces hope. It produces, um, look at, look at revelation. Doesn't leave you sad. Revelation leaves you expecting, mm-hmm. you know, you know, people say, well, the point of the book of revelation is to talk about the second coming of Jesus. I get that, and I'm not going to say that's incorrect, but I might say it differently. I would say that the purpose of the book of Revelation is to showcase the Lamb who's, who suffered and shed his blood for all of us and who sits on the throne, and, it, and, and to call believers to follow the Lamb in, in, in life, to follow him, to follow his example in a world that's messed up. And it uses the coming of Christ. It introduces the coming of Christ to give us hope that all of this suffering that we experience is going to have an end and all is well and all is going to be well. Yeah, I love that so much, right? Like it, to me, it seems that uh, what Revelation and the Bible as a whole invites us into is the uh, the <laughs> talking about declaring and decreeing, but like in all <laughs> sincerity, the ability to declare that there is meaning in this suffering. There is yes. meaning in this hardship. And yeah. uh, one of the, one of the, I think the demonic agendas that is at work, whether it be in, uh, you know, uh, your your more classic atheistic uh, yeah. uh, camp, or your now you have like the postmodernism thing that is just running mm-hmm. rampant. Um, but whether you're talking modernism or postmodernism, both of them lead to a crisis of meaning. And mm-hmm. uh, if you believe that we got here purely by like time and chance acting on matter and that's how we're here, then there is no meaning. If you believe that there is no such thing, such thing as an objective moral standard, then, then there is no meaning. Either way, you are forced to go through suffering, not being able to say with any degree of sincerity that there is meaning in this. It's just yeah. life happening to you. And what that leads to is despair. It leads to depression. It leads to uh, like uh, spiritual dead ends, right? I saw a stat today that in high school students, uh, I think it was uh, the terminology was hopelessness and sadness mm-hmm. are just like all spiking, mm-hmm. man, across all varieties of of, uh, of uh, different kinds of high school students. And no wonder they've been absolutely immersed into yeah. a into an ocean of, of modernist thought and mm-hmm. postmodernist thought. And they're drowning in the despondency that comes with the ultimate belief that there can be no meaning in life. And certainly there can be no meaning really to my suffering and Christianity yeah. offers hope. Um, and I just think it's the most attractive yeah. message out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For everybody I, I, Jake, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jake, I love it. I, you're really hitting on it. And I, I, that's where my research is, is really leading me to, is to understand that aspect of it. So theodicy is a term that deals with the judge, the righteousness of God, uh, the goodness of God, if you will, uh, the justice of God, more specifically, in light of the problem of evil. Okay, God, 
which means justice. So just God. Okay. Um, Gregory Stevenson, who actually is a professor in Michigan at Rochester College, his book guided my thinking on this. And I actually had a meeting with him because he was local at the time I was living in Michigan. I, I remember I read his book and I loved it. And I found out he's local. So I had lunch with him. I had, I was like a fanboy, you know what I mean? Asking him all these questions and stuff. And he made a really great point. That's how I feel with yeah. you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes one, right? That's like, <laughs> so, so, um, he, he's like, the question is, is revelation a theodicy, right? And, 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 and by theodicy, I mean, is it an explanation of why evil happens? Almost kind of like question. coming to God's defense, right? Like that's yep. one. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Defending God. Yeah, totally. And, um, so you have to define what you mean by theodicy. So Stevenson, and I agree with Stevenson says in, in, in the classic sense, in the traditional sense of the theodicy, no, it's not. There is no explanation. There is no theoretical explanation for why evil happens or why evil occurs in the book of Revelation. There's no reason, there's no, there's no way to try and to, to, to explain it. It's not there. But he does create a term, and you can do this in scholarship. You can create a term, and you can define what you mean by that and use that term if you define it. He says, but I propose the term, it's a practical theodicy. And by practical theodicy, he says that it is a way of living. It proposes a way of living as Christians faithfully to Jesus in spite of the suffering that we don't know why occurs. And I think he's dead on. And the reason being is because it shows the Christian, yeah, there's suffering. What's the explanation? I don't know. We're in a broken world. And, and the early Pentecostals, they did this. The early Pentecostals did this. They, they, they don't go in, in the, the deepest. So I looked through all those journal articles to find out how do they explain suffering? And you know what the only thing they said is in all those articles? It's the result of the fall. That's it. It goes no deeper than that. That's about where we have it, right? What and, about like... Sorry, go ahead. Finish. You finish. Yeah. So, so, but, but it does explain how we can, we can live in light of that. And that is faithfully to Christ. So uh, my only, like, I guess, pushback on that is, or question really, because you're infinitely yeah. smarter than I am. But so like Revelation 12, right? You have yeah. uh, uh, the great dragon thrown down that agent servant who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So this is a picture of what happened in the heavenly realm uh, at the death and resurrection of Christ uh, thereabouts, right? It's, yeah, I mean. In, I, Through the it's ministry of Christ. Like yeah, right. It, it, whether it happened precisely at the death and resurrection, right, right. maybe it's in reference to Jesus saying, I saw Satan involved yep. lightning during his ministry. And it's a major... Well, it's a major turning point in the book of Revelation as well, but yeah, for sure. Right. It's a chapter home to turning the corner. Yep. Right. Okay. So, uh, and then it says, and they have conquered him, that is the devil who's been thrown down from heaven, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So there's that picture right there of triumph, of conquering through suffering, following the lamb. Um, loving not our lives unto death, uh, uh, that, that picture. And this is this really interesting thing, but woe to you, O earth and sea, which is like a picture of kind of like the unholy, uh, uh, like the unsaved people who don't follow God, don't believe the gospel. 
Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Isn't that a picture there of like, yo, wires are suffering and just kind of like John puts yeah. this picture forward of like, well, it's because the devil's been kicked out of heaven and he's throwing a massive tantrum because he yeah. knows that the time is short. Yeah, so oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that there's, there is um, some reasons for suffering in scripture, but I don't think that there's reasons being like Satan is on the earth. Okay, he's, he's been kicked out of heaven. Um, is an explanation for suffering. So theoretically, so maybe I should just kind of go further in this because I think we agree. I just think that maybe I should do a better job explaining. A, theor- a the- theoretical explanation goes a little bit further than saying that because it's um, because of sin or because of Satan. Theoretical explanation might begin at the starting point of saying, not acknowledging that there's reasons we sin, we sin reasons are suffering. But it's like, why, if you look at it, the, way, the best way I can explain it is like this. If you look at a video game, an 8-bit video game, the way the game was programmed is like in Mario Brothers, you couldn't move, you can move left to right, but you can't. Once you move left to right, you can't mm-hmm. program, you, can't you cannot, you can't go back. <laughs> Somebody programmed it that way. Right. Right. You couldn't, you couldn't, um, there's certain pipes you couldn't go down. Mm-hmm. There's certain pipes you can go down. There's some things in the game that just were there and that's how it's programmed. So why is why is life, why is the universe, why is existence programmed where evil and good can exist side by side? Why was it even programmed where Adam had a choice? Why is it? So this, this is a very complicated matter. We could start to pick at this and, and go at it. But the question is, why is the programming such? And the, the theoretical, and I'm not trying to give reasons for why it is, discuss this, but book revelation doesn't get into that. So Stevenson says that, apologetics today are sort of missing what the New Testament was all about in the first place uh, when it gets into the problem of evil because the book of Revelation and other books was kind of more like, well, we're not going to really get into it other than it was the fall and it was Mm -hmm. Satan um, and there was evil inserted. It will give you that. But beyond that, we don't know. But what you can do is this is how you're supposed to live. And so you see pastoral Mm -hmm. epistle of Revelation. I mean, Revelation is apocalyptic, yes. Mm-hmm. I've gotten people mad at me. Ooh, it's more than apocalyptic. I know, I know, but apocalyptic, it's prophetic, but it's also pastoral. And he's writing to these churches like, this is what you got to do. This is how you pay to play. Mm-hmm. This is how you follow Christ. And for that sense, I'm like, it's a practical theodicy. It acknowledges the problem of evil, but it, it shows us how to live. It's more concerned with showing us how to live despite his existence. Right. So, John is not seeking to justify he's not really offering sovereign activity. Yeah. 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 He's kind of like saying it's going to happen, but he's more giving an apologetic. Now, he's not really giving an apologetic for this. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Some secrets belong to the Lord. I would say that <laughs> a thousand times over. Amen and amen to that. So, but I think the, the point of the book is, is that we are, I like this saying. All is going to be well. And, I, and that's the hope that I have. Mm. That, uh, that's how I end my book, um, Wings from Scriptures. All is well and all will be all will be well. And I think that you can keep that in mind and, and the Holy Spirit can entrust that to you that you, you'll be okay. And, and so we should rejoice. We should have joy. We should be happy. But um, maybe we shouldn't spend too much time trying to figure out the problem of you. Maybe, maybe when I look at myself in 2018 and I... I see myself standing before those skulls, recognizing that they 
they are they were humans who had aspirations and desires and hormones and experiences and memories and hopes and questions about God and they ended up in did they ever think that their human skull was going to end up on in the sixty five foot display case for American tourists to come see? When I see that and I'm wrestling with that question, maybe the question isn't so much to answer why that happened. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said, when you have these kind of questions, you're staring out into the darkness. And, and, and the bravery is to ask that question. And the question in and of itself keeps us searching and keeps us wondering. And, and in doing so, we, um, we think for an eternity. And, and, and to add to him, I think what that does is it leads us to prayer and it leads us to faith and it leads us to trust and hope in God. And that's about as best as we can do. Sobering. You know what my friends call me? My, my friends, my friends uh, now call me Eeyore. They're like, you know, Chris, with your project, Eeyore, Eeyore you like the rain <laughs> on everybody's parade. Like, like I come to the party, like, oh, great. Chris is here. <laughs> I'm having a great life. You know, you're probably going to suffer or deal with suffering one of these days. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel... True. And, but, and, and I feel deeply hypocritical sometimes because I would say, and I'm not looking for suffering, but I would say, relatively speaking, compared to most in life, I've done very little suffering. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm open to the voices of people who have suffered to tell me where I'm wrong and to tell me where I'm idealistic. Um, because I think I've, I've read the voice of sufferers, but, but I mean, I think experience is, is different. I mean, we've been mm-hmm. through a pandemic, but I didn't meet any loved ones. Um, I got COVID twice. I, I lost my case. I couldn't enjoy ice cream. It was about as much as suffering I did. Um, but anyway, I dig this. That's, that's my thoughts. Mm-hmm. The thing that I love about Christianity, and maybe we can close with this, is um, when it comes to like looking out into the darkness and asking the brave questions of like, why did this happen? I think at bottom, Christianity satisfactor, satisfactorily? Yeah, let's go with that. Christianity answers the question the question in a in a pretty satisfactory way, um, at least as deep as we can go, in the sense that it's because every person is ultimately sinful and wicked. Um, we're you know we're depraved people, and. Even in Revelation, right? Like when you have one of the things that like comes to mind for me is like when you have Christ bringing these messages to the seven churches and he's making their judgments of them, his judgments don't stop at the church. He actually starts to address specific people in the church. And I love that about God is that he, he looks at his church as a whole and he looks at his church as, as part of his body, but then he looks specifically at people and he recognizes the the evil that is in each of us individually. Yeah. Um, and to me, that is that is quite a satisfactory place to kind of land is to go, why yeah. did this happen? Go, mm-hmm. well, because the potential and the propensity for evil in every single one of us is beyond anything that we actually would, you know, enjoy sitting down to imagine and think through. Yeah, the early church, to back you, the early church actually, when asked about the problem of evil, um, and I have to get you a reference on this, seemed like they were more surprised that we suffered as little as we actually do, considering how evil we actually are. I mean, they felt that we had, that God was showing us a whole lot of goodness, mm-hmm. despite our suffering, considering how evil we are. And I think that's probably the way of framing it, as the, um, in, in getting to the question of 
of God's goodness. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now called Writings in Prophetic Literature um, to 31 students. And what I love about, we're looking through Isaiah through Malachi. What I love about the prophetic writings is that as much as God laid it on thick to Israel and to the North, the north and South kingdoms, mm-hmm. he always, and even to the, the, the nations that um, persecute them and, and exile them, he always leaves there a chance for hope. He always leaves a chance for salvation. And, and he does, but he also promises judgment to people that don't obey. So the grace of God and the wrath of God sit in tension, and you can't do away with either of them. And to your point, Jake, um, I do see in Revelation that I'm not an ultimate reconciliationist. I don't see that everybody's going to be reconciled. My advisor is the same. Um, I don't see Universalist reading of it. There's people that offer this reading, but I think he's very clear in the book of uh, chapter 2 and 3. I think he's very clear at the end about people that are put outside of the kingdom that uh, to do this thing and do this thing right, it, it requires faithfulness and it requires obedience and it requires following the Lamb. And, and um, I don't want to diminish God's judgment uh, because I think when we start doing that, we stop taking God seriously mm-hmm. um, and, and His Word seriously. And I think that's a very dangerous, presumptuous, and humanic, uh, humanistic approach to Scripture. Mm. What do you mean by that, humanistic? I think it's just focused on ourselves, focused on our own goodness, focused on how good we are, not necessarily how serious God is about holiness and, right. and his spirit that he gave us to enforce that in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chris, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to unpack some of these thoughts for us. Well, Jake and Michael, I love you guys, man. I'm, I'm a fan of you guys. So I appreciate Vast Faith. I always, I always like scrolling through Instagram and seeing Vast Faith have a new podcast. <laughs> seeing what kind of stuff you guys get into this week. So Yeah, exactly. We're making it up as we go. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what we're doing. You, you and everybody else, including myself. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We all are. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Bless you guys. Mm-hmm.